If you say something long enough, eventually people will believe it. And you might even find yourself believing it too. The whole idea of fact-checking something goes out the door depending on a few criteria. Number one, if you agree with the message, you don't have to check the facts. Number two, if you trust the messenger, you don't have to check the facts either. And it becomes one big game of telephone where one person hears one message and passes it on to the next and the next and the next and the next. And eventually, by the time it gets back to the original person, it's a completely different message. It goes around again and again and again. It happens in the news, it happens with friends, and unfortunately, it happens with God's Word, too. Phrases magically appear to be God-inspired and errant truths, not because they actually are, but because we attribute them to God's Word, and people have repeated them enough that nobody dare question its authority anymore. Allow me to give some examples God helps those who help themselves. That's a great Bible verse, right? Only it's not in there. Or God doesn't give you anything you can't handle. If only it were true. But again, it's not in God's word. Or money is the root of all evil. Again, you won't find that phrase in God's word. The love of money is the root of all evil. And contrary to popular belief, these are not actually Bible verses. You can also search through your Bible glossary and look for the poem Footprints in the Sand, and it's not going to be in the inspired text either. Or the sinner's prayer is not found in the inspired text either. But so often we hear these things that we think it must be God's word. It must be true. But that's not how it works. Unfortunately, this isn't anything new. People have been coming up with their own scripture for a long time. The Pharisees and the teachers of law were old pros at this, twisting the meaning of Scripture into something that they could keep, into something that they could make sure they had it right. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus corrects a few of these ideas. Three times in our passage this morning, he mentions it was said, or you've heard it said. It's helpful to step back into Jesus' time and to see what's going on, to learn more about these sayings and to see what exactly is Jesus saying here. Rather than what someone heard from someone who heard from someone who heard from their mom, who heard from their teacher, who heard from their kindergarten student. And if you lost me on that, or if I lost you on that, that's my point. Let's look to God's word and see what God's word says. Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 37. And again, I invite you to stand out of respect for God's word. Matthew 5, starting at verse 27, reading in Jesus' name. You have heard that it was said... You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is a throne of God, or by the earth, for it is a footstool of his feet." Or by Jerusalem, for it is a city of the great king. 
nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black, but let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond these is of evil. Father God, these are your words, and your word is truth. We pray this morning, Lord, that you would sanctify us in your truth. Open up our hearts to receive the message that you have for us, and help us, Father, to see you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So you've heard about adultery. You shall not commit adultery, Jesus says. There's nothing wrong with that statement. It's word for word, the sixth commandment. It's exactly as Larry read it in the book of Exodus, in the passage he read today, Exodus 20:14. It hasn't changed a bit. But what has changed is the interpretation of that commandment. Most people take that commandment to mean don't have sex with someone other than your spouse. And as long as you're married, or when you're married, and as long as you don't, you've kept it. You can pat yourself on the back and you can move on to the other more important commandments that you need to work on. That's the way we like to think of it as. But Jesus explains his commandment further in verse 28. He says, But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus is confronting the public opinion here on adultery. It's not just committing the act. It goes deeper than that. And this is what Jesus is getting at. It's more pervasive. Even if you look at another person with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery with that person. This is what Jesus is saying. Now the church has taken that to mean, oh, be careful little eyes what you see. And the application of that verse is usually, ladies, cover yourselves up. And guys, if you're outside playing sports, wear a shirt. Look at any Bible camp dress code and you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. And I wish that covered all of our bases. I wish simple steps like that could solve the problem, but unfortunately, it doesn't. It's good practical advice, but it doesn't solve the problem because the problem goes deeper than the way that we dress. Jesus mentions plucking out your eye if it causes you to sin. This idea that, oh, I couldn't help myself. I saw this and my eye just led me down this route, this path. I couldn't help it. He's speaking to a crowd here that would say, it's not my fault if that's what came before my eyes, as though there were no personal responsibility here in the text. Jesus tells them, pluck out the eye. Remove that excuse from you. But if you pluck out your own eye, you'll find out the problem doesn't go away. So if you pluck out both eyes, then does the problem go away? It doesn't go away. If you remove your hand and both your eyes, does the problem go away? No, it doesn't. If you remove all of your limbs and all of your eyes and every single physical faculty that you have, does the problem go away? Unfortunately, it doesn't. Because the problem goes deeper than the skin. The problem is straight in the heart. In Luther's small catechism, in his explanation to the Sixth Commandment, he says this, We should fear and love God. We should fear and love God. This is the first thing we are to do. Fear and love Him, so that we lead pure and decent lives in word and deed. And each of us loves and honors his or her spouse. This commandment here is broken whenever we don't live pure and chaste lives, whether that's in thought whether that's in word or whether that's in our own deeds, whether it's locker room talk, whether it's your own imaginations, 
or whether it's following a lustful heart. This commandment's also broken whenever we don't honor and cherish our spouses. This commandment isn't just reserved for those who are married, however. This commandment's for all people. You shall not commit adultery. High school isn't a free pass to do whatever you want to do. Neither is college. Whether it's fooling around sexually before you're married or after you're married with someone other than your spouse, whether it's consuming pornography, or whether it's just entertaining sexual fantasies, call it what it is. It's sin. It's breaking God's holy will. The solution to this problem isn't isolating yourself from all forms of temptation, though it does in fact help, and though God does call us to take action to remove ourselves from these temptations, but that doesn't solve the problem. The solution comes in cleansing of the heart. And no matter how hard we try, we just can't do it. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, so don't, whether that be in thought, word, or deed. Fear God, live pure and holy lives, and love and honor your spouse. Jesus moves on to the next subject here, divorce. So you've heard about divorce. In verses 31 and 32, Jesus addresses this topic. And the Jews had two traditions that taught about divorce. There were two schools of thought. One viewed divorce as no big deal. as Husbands were permitted to divorce their wives for such terrible things as burning a meal, for such terrible things as not looking as good as other ladies that were around. And if your husband saw a lady who looked prettier than you, it was okay for him to divorce you and to go after that other woman. So long as they had a certificate of divorce going with it. That was one school of thought. And the other school of thought was divorce is never okay unless there is an unfaithful spouse. Jesus says here, it was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. This was their guiding principle that they lived by. That's how they were operating. Divorce was rampant during Jesus' day. It was no big deal for these people. If they saw something that looked better, they said, see you later, wife. I'm going to go after this woman instead. It's not too different than what we find in the world and in the church today, is it? Divorce has become no big deal. But then Jesus goes on to the next verse. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Is Jesus here picking a camp as to which one of these traditions he sets up his tent? To which one of these uh, Jewish rabbis' line of thought he is endorsing? It's not what he's doing here. He isn't teaching that divorce is permissible in this situation, but he's teaching about what happens in divorce. God's word is clear that the Lord hates divorce. In marriage, the two become a one flesh union that is not to be taken apart until death do us part. And that's the Lord's prerogative. It's not our own prerogative. God's word also says what God has joined together, let not man separate. The Lord hates divorce. So Jesus isn't advocating for divorce here. He upholds God's holy will. 
but he explains the reality of what happens in divorce. And this is what he is getting at is verse 32. In our English translations, this is the understanding that we walk away with when we read that verse, that if the husband divorces the wife, the wife commits adultery. And not only the wife, but whoever would marry this woman in the future also commits adultery. As you read that verse in the English translation, that's what we walk away with. It looks like the guilty party here isn't the husband who divorces his wife, but the wife who has been divorced and whoever it is who marries that person later on. So how does the husband get off scot-free if God hates divorce and he sends his spouse away? It doesn't seem fair. And the problem is that's not what Jesus said. That's how our English versions have translated it, but unfortunately that's not what Jesus has said. The reason why it's translated this way is because we don't have a passive tense for this verb in our English language. Even though the husband is the one seeking to end the marriage, it's translated as the wife is the one who commits adultery. And grammatically speaking, in the Greek, and this is over my head as well, there is no way to get to that conclusion being faithful to the biblical text in which it was originally given. There's no way to interpret this verse as the wife being the one who commits adultery. There's also no way to interpret this verse as the one who marries this wife, as the one committing adultery. You can't get there being faithful to the text and taking it for what it says. Those verbs are passive tense. It's translated as active because we don't have a passive tense of committing adultery. A better translation would be this. He brings about that she is stigmatized as adulteress, and he, the future husband, is stigmatized as adulteress. More literally, it's said, the husband who divorces his wife is committing adultery against his wife. The husband who divorces his wife is committing adultery to whoever it is that marries his wife in the future as well. What Jesus is telling his audience here is even though it's legal to give your wife a certificate of divorce, it still isn't right. You sin against your spouse, and you sin against whoever it is who would marry that spouse again later. This message goes hand in hand with what he was just teaching about adultery. Not only is looking at a person lustfully breaking the commandment, but so is divorcing your spouse. Luther summarizes this in the Sixth Commandment with his words, this commandment requires all people not only to live chaste and to live lives chaste in deed, word, and thought, but also to love and cherish the spouse whom God has given them. And divorce breaks this command. Divorce is not loving and cherishing your spouse. It's a reality check that the people needed at this time. Those who taught that divorce was no big deal. It's a reality check that this world needs as well. It's a reality check that unfortunately the church needs to hear as well. We don't often think of divorce as sin, as breaking God's commandment, but it is. Call it what it is, sin. It violates God's will and it's not to be dealt with lightly. Jesus moves on to the next topic in verses 33 through 37 about vows. He says, so you've heard about vows. You shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. You've heard about vows. A little context is helpful here. We know that the Jews regarded the Lord's name as holy. They were not to 
sin against God's name. They weren't going to take the name of the Lord in vain. And so as you look at your Old Testament, you'll find the word LORD in all caps because they didn't translate Yahweh there. They changed the name to Adonai, LORD, instead to revere his name and respect his name so as not to uh, take his name lightly or sin against his name. The problem comes here when they wanted to say something to be truthful, to be honest, and they wanted to swear by a higher authority. They didn't, I swear to God that I'm going to do this. They couldn't do that because that would be taking the name of the Lord in vain. And so they got creative. Instead, they, I swear by the temple in Jerusalem. I swear by the gold in the temple of Jerusalem. And they had these whole list of stipulations to make some vows more binding than other vows. And Jesus is correcting this idea here. The word that they were teaching was, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. And the Jews took this to say, Fulfill your vows to the Lord. The other vows, it doesn't matter what you do with those. But Jesus comes to them and he says, fulfill your word. In verse 24, he comes to them bluntly and says, make no oath at all. Either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is a footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is a city of the great king. There's no escape from the Lord's presence here. You can't swear by anything on this earth and have it not be the Lord's because the worth belongs to the Lord. And Jesus says here, you don't have any authority to swear by anything on this earth. Which one of us has the authority to make our hearts pump? Who of us here tells our lungs, okay, you're going to breathe for me today? We subconsciously, we unconsciously do it. We're not the ones that are in charge of those things. God is the one who is making those things work. We can't swear by our mother's grave because we have no authority over that. That's under the Lord's power and rule. We can't swear by the temple in Jerusalem because, again, that belongs to the Lord. We can't swear to the Lord either because that's not what God has called us to do. But he says instead, make no oaths at all. Simply let your yes be yes and your no be no. He says we can't even change the color of our hair. Now, some of you might dye your hair. But when it grows back, are the roots the same color as the dye that you just used, or do you have to go and buy another thing of dye? I don't know the answer. I don't dye my hair yet. But I think the roots come back the same color as it was before. We can't even change the color of our hair. What makes us think that we have the authority to swear by anything here on this earth? Using oaths implies that we can't be trusted unless we're under some kind of oath. But Jesus tells his audience, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Keep your word. Even without an oath, you shouldn't have to have an oath before the Lord in order for your word to be trustworthy. But God tells us not to lie and not to be deceitful. Jesus is talking here about everyday conversation. Swearing to God, swearing on your mother's grave, swearing by the temple in Jerusalem has no place in the believer's life. Because the believer is supposed to live a pure and holy life an honest life, and the believer is supposed to keep their word as well. This is what God desires of us. There's no formula of words that need to be said before we're required to keep our word. God desires for us to be truthful, and that's enough. When we break our vows, whether it's before God or before men, we lie. So call it what it is. It's sin. So you've heard. You've heard how the Jews like to finagle the law of God 
They did this to ease their guilty consciences. If I can just keep my vows that I make to the Lord and not to anybody else, then it doesn't matter so much what I say or what I do. If I settle for the laws of man instead of the law of God, I can find myself off the hook. And I'd love to admit that adultery is just an extramarital affair because then most of us here can say, I haven't done it. And we love to think that divorce is no big deal because we see it all over the place. We love to think that God doesn't expect us to keep our word. So we trade the laws of God in for the laws of man and we follow our hearts completely unaware that therein lies the problem. The problem isn't in our actions. The problem isn't in rules and regulations. The problem is in our own sinful hearts. It's deeper than our words. It's deeper than our actions. It's deeper than our thoughts. It's the very core of who we are. Poor, miserable sinners who have often sinned against God in thought, word, and deed. But it's these very same poor, miserable sinners whom Christ came to save. It's these very same poor, miserable sinners who Christ has reconciled to God with his blood and his blood alone. It's these very same poor, miserable sinners whom God makes into new creations, who God cleanses and gives to them a new heart and a new spirit, his spirit, one that causes them to walk according to his holy will and his statutes. So the situation is not hopeless. What we need today more and more of is not more rules and regulations. What we need today is forgiveness, to cry out to God, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. What we need today is not a way to explain away our guilt or explain away our sin. We need a Savior who takes our sin away and removes it from us as far as the east is from the west. But God has sent to us a Savior, and his name is Jesus. So when the law condemns you of your sin, don't try to explain it away. Own that sin and come to the Lord in repentance and faith. Say, Father, against you and you alone have I sinned. And in confessing our sins, find the Savior who has come to cleanse you from all unrighteousness, from each and every sin, and live pure and holy lives. Living pure and holy lives isn't living by some code of law that we can't attain to or we try to attain to. Living a pure and holy life is a life of repentance and faith, acknowledging in, my, in and of myself, I am not pure, I am not holy, but coming to the one who is pure and holy and coming to the one who has come to make you pure and holy through his word and his sacrament, through Jesus' blood and righteousness. Let's pray. Father God, we've seen your word today. Lord, we've heard your word today. We've heard the cheap substitutes that the world likes to tell us of what your law demands. And God, as we come before you and we see your law, we see our own sinful hearts and we acknowledge that we have sinned against you in our thoughts, in our words, and in our deeds. Help us to admit these sins, to confess these sins to you, not try to cover them up, but in confessing them, Lord, show us again what you have done to save us from our sin, to forgive us, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We thank you for the promises in your word that reveal to us again what you have done to save us from our sin. And Jesus, we thank you for your life, death, and resurrection, for the hope that you give us. We thank you as we cry out to you, create in me a clean heart, O God. You are faithful and true to give us clean hearts, to make us new creations, 
to make us pure and holy, the spotless bride of Christ that you tell us about in Ephesians 5. We praise you for that this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.